welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hi, I'm Scott Down, CIO of Top 100 Furniture Retailer, Haynes Furniture. I have worked with Storrs team for over 24 years and they are truly different from other tech companies. Storrs is a strategic partner with an outstanding team behind them. For Haynes, the proof is in our results. We had an initiative to modernize our brand experience across channels. Rolling out Storrs Mobile POS significantly reduced our checkout time and elevated our showroom experience. We have also increased our online conversion rate using the eStores platform. Storrs is the best software out there for top furniture companies. Learn more at storrs.com today. Welcome to this week's edition of On the Record. Um, this week, the tables have been turned on me. Uh, I invited our senior retail editor, Clint Engel, to come and sit down with me and talk about uh, his more than 25 years experience in the furniture business. Uh, and being the astute reporter that it, he is, he pointed out to me that I actually have longer experience in the furniture business, and he likes to ask the questions. Um, so we're going to have a little role reversal this week, and uh, Clint Engel is going to interview me and then share some of his, his insights uh, about the furniture business as we talk. So, uh, Clint, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Bill. Um, I, I'm a little nervous, I have to admit. <laughs> I, I have that makes two of us. <laughs> well, I have heard many retailers who you talk, talk to, um, they very often say, he got more out of me than I intended to share. <laughs> so uh, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen here, but we'll, we'll bring our audience along for the ride. All right, great. Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to leave it kind of wide open, but I thought I'd start with some softballs. Oh, I like that. Um, I wanted to ask you, first, you know, first off, if you can list your favorite FT reporters from most favorite to least favorite. Um, or actually, you just go alphabetical and that might make it, and we could just say well, it was. You're my favorite. <laughs> um, will that get me easier questions? <laughs> All <laughs> right. Dave, Tom, Powell, or <laughs> But on a serious note, I just wanted to ask you about where you were, a little bit about your history before you got to FT. Sure. Um, I actually started covering retail in 1987. Um, I worked for a magazine that was called Upscale Discounting. Uh, I was there for about two years, and I spent most of that time explaining to people that upscale discounting was not an oxymoron. Well, explain to me why it's not an oxymoron. Okay. So at that time in the 80s, a lot of new um, retail concepts were emerging. If you think prior to the 1980s, if you wanted to buy a brand name product, you typically had to go to a department store. and um, the only place that started to emerge that you could buy brand name products at something other than full price were catalog showrooms. So upscale discounting actually started from the merger of two catalog showroom magazines. And so at that time you had the emergence of category killers like Bed Bath & Beyond and Linens and things. Uh, you had the emergence of warehouse clubs like Costco and BJ's, except that there were dozens of them. Right? Um, you had the emergence of office superstores. Today we know Office Depot and Staples. When I started covering that business, there were more than 35 of them across the country. So the same thing with consumer electronics chains. If you're from the Northeast, you probably remember Crazy Eddie. Um, those of you who are old enough remember, his prices were insane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but I mean, there were dozens and dozens of these specialty retail concepts. So in order to cover that kind of business, it was upscale in the sense that it was brand name products. So brand name and upscale were so, sort of synonymous? Exactly. So, uh, well, also at that time, 
Uh, you had Target emerging uh, as uh, a significant force in national retail. It started as a division of Dayton Hudson, was a regional uh, discount department store, but that was starting to expand. And that was where in uh, the early days when it was earning the name Target, right? They positioned themselves as an upscale discounter. Um, people may not remember, but Kmart one time used the term upscale discounter to refer to themselves. They were trying to be a better discounter. Um, people may not remember, but Martha Stewart's first licensed collection in home was actually a soft goods line with Kmart. Yeah. Uh, so that's what that refers to. So it was essentially brand name products at discount prices. Okay. And from there? So uh, from there, uh, I actually uh, took two and a half, three years off where I worked part-time when my son was born um, and I stayed home. My wife and I made the decision that she would retain her career and I would continue my career on a freelance basis. So uh, I stayed home for a few years and I, uh, I raised my son. Uh, and then in 1993, 94, um, I went back into the workforce and I got a job for a publication called Homeworld Business, um, which is a housewares publication. So from that point up until I joined Furniture Today, um, I covered the housewares industry. I wrote about pots and pans, I wrote about small appliances, I wrote about vacuum cleaners. Um, people who know me have already heard this story. I actually broke the story when Dyson first came to the United States. I was able to be the first person to break that story and got to interview um, Sir James Dyson. Okay, interesting. And I think at Homeworld Business, that's where you worked. Is that where you worked with our former editor-in-chief? That's actually where I met Ray Allegreza. Um, he and I sat next to each other. Uh, literally right side by side and um, he was a terrific influence on my career and I'll tell you one of the things that used to amaze me um, and this came up when he and I talked I would sit next to Ray and I would hear him in conversations with senior level executives I mean presidents and CEOs of companies and he'd be talking about baseball and he'd be talking about his kids and he'd be talking about and it seemed like they were just having this casual conversation and then you would read the story that he produced on the interview, and it was these great, robust, detailed quotes. Hmm. Um, and what it really was is Ray was just a phenomenal relationship builder, and he would put people at ease, and he would treat them as people, and in turn, they would speak to him in a much more candid way than an editor who's sitting there kind of asking, okay, so my next question is, and my next question is, they were casual conversations, they were based on relationships, and I learned an enormous about, amount about relationship building just by sitting next to Ray. That's great. Yeah. And then he actually was very responsible for bringing you here in? 2014. Okay. So um, I joined Furniture Today in September of 2014, which was uh, a few months before um, Ray retired, and we overlapped from September to June. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. You're, during that overlap, your title was? Chief Content Officer. And I remember you back then, or back when you became Editor-in-Chief, that you wanted to hold on to the Chief Content Editor title too. Why? Um, why did I want to hold on to a Chief Content why was, Editor? Why was, that, why was that important to you? What, what was it about Chief Content Editor that was significant to you? Actually, I prefer the, the title Editor-in-Chief for Furniture Today. The thing I liked about Chief Content Officer is it emphasized the importance of content. Um, I am a firm believer that content is critically important. And uh, while some people, a lot of people, think of Furniture Today as a newspaper, um, and I know Steve Pond, the founder, when I first met him, the first thing he did is I referred to it as a publication, and he pointed out to me that it was a newspaper. <laughs> um, but if you look at the way that media has changed, content is what's important. 
delivery, everything else is just delivery system. So today we have two newsletters a day, we have a website, we have a social media presence. People want to consume just in the same way that people want to shop in different ways. People want to consume information in different ways. So I think having a title that emphasizes the value and importance of content, regardless of the medium through which you distribute that content, I think it's an important distinction to make. I place a high value on good quality content, which is one of the reasons I'm so grateful to work at Furniture Today, because we have some really terrific reporters. Okay, great. Um, I, I think we're working on something along the lines of mentoring and asking people who their mentors are, so I thought I'd ask you, who do you consider among your mentors? Not only first from your previous life and then since you've been this deep into the furniture industry. Well, Ray was actually very early on a mentor in my career, and he and I maintained a relationship that spanned wherever we worked. Um, we also worked together at HFN uh, in the mid-90s, and even once he came here to Furniture Today and I went back to Homeworld Business, um, we maintained a, a strong relationship. So he was a mentor. Um, my first boss, his name was Ralph Sullivan. He was the publisher and owner of Upscale Discounting. And so that was my first real trade experience. And so while we did not maintain a relationship for that period that I was there, um, I learned a lot about the, the importance of, of content, uh, about the connection between uh, the publishing side and the editorial side. Because even though there's, you want to maintain a separation and you want to, your editorial to have cred credibility, at the end of the day, um, we are not in a not-for-profit business, and so you always have to be cognizant of the impact and how those two work together mm -hmm. to be mutually supportive. I always view the importance of the editorial role is to deliver an audience. And if we don't deliver an audience, then advertising has no value. Who are you advertising to if there is no audience? Mm -hmm. So I think you have to be very cognizant of that. So he was um, also an early mentor. And then there was a, a gentleman named Harry Hutchinson at HFN um, who was an absolutely ruthless copy editor. I mean, at the time, I was not always, I mean, he was the kind of person who, if you were on deadline at you know 3.30 in the afternoon, you had to have the book out the door at five o'clock, and your story had a hole in it, he'd hand it back to you and say, you gotta go call this guy back, uh, and you have to make an extra phone call, we need to have this in the story. And while you don't always appreciate somebody who has high standards and is demanding at the time you're working for them, I think there's a real value in that, and I actually have maintained when I copy edit, uh, I'm not afraid to, to tear up a story and you know really yes, try uh, to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so those are all people. I how about I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, and if you're not, how about since you've been in the furniture industry, people you've communicated with who have kind of told you how it really works. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, Kevin Castellani, who's the former president here, um, right from the time I walked in the door, was a tremendous resource. He, I mean, I don't know if there are 10 people in the industry. He doesn't know. He, he has, you know, tremendous connections throughout the industry. He's very willing to share information. Um, you know, he was able to share a lot of history. And one of the things that, um, you know I spend a lot of time because of our leadership conference thinking about management and leadership principles. So there is something that Kevin always did that I have tried to emulate and I would encourage as people listen, if you are a manager and you have to work with people, one thing he always did when you came in and you sat and talked with him, he always gave you your full attention, his full attention. Um, he wasn't checking email, he wasn't looking at his computer, he wasn't he never made you feel like you were intruding. You, he was always present in the conversation, always was listening to what you said, 
and always was responding to what you said. Mm -hmm. And I always admired that as a management yeah. strategy, as a management technique. Uh, the, the folks at Klausner, both Bill Wittenberg and Len Burke, uh, have been very supportive in terms of providing information. Ron Wanick at Ashley, uh, you know, th there's so much that people don't realize that for every on-the-record conversation that you have and the things that you talk about and you you're able to report on, um, the real value is is having more casual background or off-the-record conversations so people will explain. And one of the things that I've really appreciated in, uh, in the furniture business is that people will talk to you off the record yeah. as a person trusting that you're not necessarily going to expose details of their business because at the end of the day I'm interested in a long-term relationship not just you know getting this next story out of print all right all right but back on the record uh -oh. <laughs> I'm in the chair all right so five years at furniture today longer in retail but still for furniture relatively new to furniture today compared to my staff yeah. yeah i mean i think the average tenure here on our staff is is from somewhere between 15 and 20 years wow so i wanted to ask you what are some of the things you observe in the industry that maybe some of us longer time observers don't see or maybe we don't we don't recognize as clearly significant I, I don't know if it's significant or not but i have always been surprised by the lack of consolidation how and I, I don't want to use the term fragmented people refer to the furniture industry as fragmented but I I think that can sometimes have a pejorative context um, it's just so diffuse there are still for whatever amount of consolidation has taken place there are still so many important local and regional furniture stores and I'll go back to what I was saying about uh, office superstores consumer electronics chains houseware specialty chains there's Bed Bath & Beyond that's it there's Office Depot and Staples, that's it. Uh, there's Costco's, BJ's, and Sam's Club in the Warehouse Club channel. Very, very consolidated. Discount stores, when I started in the business, there were 150 discount chains all over. If you live in the Midwest, you knew Venture. If you live down south, you, you knew Zare, or here in North Carolina, you knew Roses. The furniture industry still has an enormous number of local furniture stores. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I, I th that's a good question, and if I knew, I, I could probably... Uh, What's different about furniture, though, that ke that's keeping that going? And I should ask you that question. I'm, I'm, I've, I've pondered that question forever, and there's a, a million different angles you can take, but I think it's partly, it's such a personal, for the most part, it's such a personalized, custom-type business that you need that local help, but at the same time, you hear people complain about salespeople all the time. So I don't know if that's the right answer. Well, I think part of it is simply the size. Um, it's, it's a big purchase. So it's a big ticket purchase, which means there needs to be a high level of trust. You don't want to spend $1,000 or $5,000 or I mean, even $350 or $400. You don't want to spend that money with someone that you don't trust. That's also a difficult delivery purchase. Uh, it's not cash and carry. It's a very difficult cash and carry business. You're not going to go buy a sofa and throw it on the roof of your car, or not in any mm -hmm. kind of way that would represent scale in mm -hmm. a business. I can go to any local store and I can buy a toaster or I can buy a piece of jewelry or an iPhone. I walk out, I put it in my bag, and I'm gone. That doesn't exist in the furniture business. So the ability to deliver across a large area becomes a challenge if you want to have a national organization. I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch the progression of Bob's as they start to expand their footprint 
across the country, they're going to have to have a, a national distribution network mm -hmm. have to, to support that. Uh, it's interesting that Wayfair, as large as they are, the focus is on logistics, right, with Castlegate and how do they build up a national logistics system to be able to support next day, same day delivery. So I think that in some ways mitigates. The other thing about the furniture business is, and I think you referenced it, it's a very personal purchase. If I buy a cell phone and it's really cool and I show it to somebody, they go, wow, that's so cool, I want one just like that. Mm -hmm. um, if I buy a sofa and it's a custom pattern and a style, it's an expression of my personality. It's, it's much more an expression of who you are as an individual. And so um, you don't necessarily want the same thing that everybody else has. So that ability to individualize and customize, I think, also weighs in to the uniqueness of the firm. That sort of would explain the, I was going to question, challenge you on the in big ticket purchase idea because you think of appliances as big ticket purchase, but there's no personalization really. It's like you can see the specs, you don't care if your neighbor has the same stove, it's whatever you want versus uh, more of a fashion. Well, I think in, in fact, if you see a neighbor's stove and you think that's a really cool stove, it has features and benefits, right? You, it's very right. clear, feature yeah. and benefits. Okay. Um, Okay, so I, w I was listening to, I think, your latest podcast, or one of your latest, uh, with the four young first-time or nearly first-time furniture buyers. I found a lot of interesting stuff packed in there. Some, So I wanted to give you my quick takeaways and then ask you for whether you agree and what are, what are some of yours. So the, if I remember right, they were aged 21 to 30. Um, uh, the relatively older, younger person was the one who bought a furniture, were bought at a furniture store. Versus the others were from, I think, big lots, one rented, one Amazon. Uh, I had the question: Do you think that says something, anything about consumers graduating to stores or male buyers versus female buyers? The, the older uh, buyer was a, the furniture store buyer was a male. Um, or is the sample way too small to really jump to those kind of conclusions? It, it's hard on a sample of four, right, to make projections. Yeah. And also, in Brandon's case, um, he had a personal relationship with the owner of the store. Uh -huh. So again, that makes being able to project. But I think there is an element of, if we look at millennial purchasers, I think one of the reasons that furniture stores are being challenged to reach them is that traditional communication methods have changed. So the way that you get in front of younger consumers is different than the way that you got in front of consumers in my generation, right? In my generation, it was uh, TV, it was the local newspaper. Uh, I have a, a millennial son, he's 29. I don't think he's touched a newspaper in his entire life. Most of what he watches is on his phone or on a tablet, and it's streaming. So I think the furniture industry is having to adjust its marketing mix to figure out how to get in front of those new consumers. That being said, and we talk about millennials and Gen Z, I think a more important thing to talk about is life stage. So it doesn't matter so much the years that you were born, but it does matter where you are in your life. So as a consumer starts to set up a household, uh, the first household maybe you feel very temporary about, but at some point you put down roots. Right, he, so, just had a, he just recently had a baby, and so they're sort of settled in or settling well, in. Well, he was the most settled of, mm -hmm. of the four. Um, he's the, the only one who currently is a parent. And I think <clears throat> as you become a parent, you become more settled, right? You, you, want, you don't want to upset your child, so you're going to maintain your residence. Once your child enters into school, the decision to move becomes uh, weighted by are you willing to pull your child out of school? So I think 
as we see millennials start to settle down and start to ha have their own families, I think there's an opportunity for furniture stores to get in front of them and have that conversation. But I do think they're going to have to try to do that in different ways. And I don't think it's going to be conventional television. If I was a, a furniture retailer right now, I would be looking at how do I get onto the streaming services, right, whether right. that's Hulu or Amazon Prime or Netflix, um, YouTube. And I'm hearing more and more are going that direction. I'm actually starting to see those ads show up on my own streams. So. And, and I don't think that the, the way that they advertise, in other words, the content of those ads, um, I don't know that they're going to have to change that dramatically. I think they'll still have to tell a lifestyle story. So mm -hmm. if you look at a television ad from our generation, you would try to position that in a way that was relevant to the consumer's lifestyle. So oh. if you were... Go ahead. Oh, no, uh, but, but you do see less of the things that furniture stores are guilty of or considered guilty of, which is the heavy discounting, on sale now, you have to rush in. You don't see too much of that on the streaming 15-second ads, do you? Um, I don't know that that's the, uh, the appropriate format for that, right? I think in 15 seconds, the other thing is that I think that this generation wants to feel like you are relevant to them. And I think if you are telling a lifestyle story, I think that's the way you're going to have to reach this generation. If you look at a lot of the social media advertising that you see today, uh, even some of these direct-to-consumers like a Joybird or a, a Lovesack, it's a lifestyle play. It's trying to align the product with the consumer's lifestyle. So it's not so much about no money down, no payments for you know six years, no interest. It's about we relate to your moments. And Google talks a lot about this when they, if you've ever listened to a speaker from Google talk about how they think about advertising, they think of it about they want to be in front of the consumer at life's moments, key moments. So you want to have a message that shows that you are, and I, okay, so here's an example. I was watching a commercial the other night, and it was a, a young man. Who, who was there with his grandfather, and he was about to go out the door. And as he does, he says, Alexa, remind Grandpa to take his medicine at 2 o'clock. Mm -hmm. And as he does, he's singing the song Valerie. Right. So at the end of the commercial, he comes back, and right before he walks in the door, the grandfather says, Alexa, play that song Valerie. And so it's a nice touching yeah, yeah. moment that Grandpa embraced the new technology, and it's also... Uh, a case of here is this young man who's using Alexa essentially as a babysitter for an yeah, elderly yeah. family member. So again, it's putting yourself in the consumer's place and showing that you are relevant and in connection with their lifestyle. Total Retail states that effective brick and tech creates concierge shopping experiences, customer recognition, and continued brand engagement across channels. Storis is the home furnishings industry's only true unified commerce solution, enabling retailers to engage with their customers across their brand. Storis helps retailers to grow your sales and online conversion rates so you can sell anywhere the customer chooses to shop with your business. Did you know that Storis' top 100 retailers processed $6.7 billion through our technology last year? If you're ready for true unified commerce, learn more at storis.com today. I'm Caitlin Jaszewski with Storis. Thanks for listening. Okay, I, I want to get back to that, but but before I do, let's let's run through some of the other things. And and one of them, I, what, why I want to get back to is because it's related to that. Um, 
versus price. But some of the other things I took away from the uh, panel, I don't think anybody said they bought from their channel because they wanted it right now, which was kind of surprised me. One mentioned a two-week turnaround on custom item, uh, and she found that to be incredible. Uh, but you, you keep, you know, you, the, to me, you keep hearing about the importance of the instant gratification, especially the younger generation, the prime generation. And I didn't see anybody saying that's the reason they chose their channel because they needed it and wanted it because they had it right now. Uh, maybe you have a different take. Convenience, you, okay, convenience and price seemed like the more important factors or the desire to check it out first. Uh, for the most part, they were very wary of salespeople at least poorly trained salespeople. Maybe the other, uh, the older the shopper, the more likely to appreciate a good RSA. Um, online reviews are critical. That was a takeaway. And if they uploaded photos from customers, it's even better. Loyalty rewards programs work, even if it's for unrelated product or services. Personalization, customization may be the salvation of local furniture stores. On the subject of set price or open to negotiation, it was a tie, two and two. And then finally, that sustainable environmental question you asked uh, that, that came down to product. The product, that is a nice feature, but ultimately it comes down to price and they don't seem willing to pay much of a premium for it, uh, at least where they are in the income and buying cycle. And so, like, so it, to me, it seemed like it kept, when I listened to it, price seemed like very, very important and we keep, and we keep talking about how even in uh, surveys that it falls at a lower level, but to these young consumers, it seemed like price was first. You know, they can't afford, uh, they can't afford more than this. Uh, so I, I, anyway. Well, so let's look at, go back to life stage. Okay. Right, three of the four, um, well, two of the four. One is still in college and is just setting up her first apartment. The other one just graduated college, setting up her first apartment. A third one, then it was the young lady who had custom furniture made, mm -hmm. right? She's married. She just bought her first house. She tended to skew, if you think about it, willing to pay for a custom piece. Mm -hmm. And then we had Brandon who um, just had a baby, has a house, and actually bought uh, a leather sofa, which is not a cheap purchase. So I think, again, I th it goes back to more to life stage than hmm. what your generational label is. And I think you'll probably see, and, and even Adelaide, Addie, um, who talked about, right, price was very, very important to her. She acknowledged that that's the case now, but she doesn't necessarily sure. think that that'll sure. be the case later. Remember, most young people coming out of school, uh, I mean, this generation has the highest level of student loan debt uh, of any generation in history. So they're, before they even make a purchase, mm -hmm. that's in their mind. They have something that I never had, a cell phone bill. When I first set up my first house and did my first furniture shopping, my furniture choice didn't have to compete against a thousand dollar iPhone and a two hundred dollar a month cell phone, and a Spotify bill, and a Netflix and a bill, bill and, a, and on and on. Yeah. Um, what else? What, what am I missing? What are some things that you took away from that? Could you go back to the beginning of that question because there was something that you said there. Sure. Um, that I really thought was interesting, and I did want to kind of challenge the premise of that. I don't think anybody said that they bought their uh, from their channel because they wanted it right now. Was that okay, it? Okay, yes, that was the one. I think that's because they take it for granted. None of them 
other than the young lady who, who was surprised about the custom piece, none of them talked about custom order. When they talk about the life or, or the time span that they think of, they almost take for granted. So they, ex they just, oh, it's a given, it's going to come in a, uh, I, I might come next day or two days. Well, well yeah, and I, I would have, and I wish I had asked this question, and I would be curious to do some surveys on this, is what is their expected time frame? Yeah, and I think it would be an interesting, and you know, we have our consumer buying behavior study coming up later this year, our CBB. That might be an interesting question to address with consumers: is what is your expected time frame? It may not even enter into their mind that they have to wait eight to twelve weeks for a furniture purchase. I mean, we've heard a number of people in the furniture industry say that time is more important. Um, I've heard logistics people say you used to measure it in weeks, and now it's in days. So I think the uh, particularly long, younger consumers, the, the idea of having to wait three months for a purchase is just so alien to them that it doesn't even enter into their conscious. They take for granted that I can have it in a week or in a couple of days. You ever think we might see an on-the-record panel of uh, not necessarily F Furniture Today employees or um, uh, Bridge Tower employees, but you think we might see a panel of uh, retailer, uh, retailers, consumers that fit into the, the prime furniture buying, or is that? I think that would be absolutely, yeah. Um, it's a funny thing, the response we've gotten to that, to that little quick focus group has been phenomenal. Um, that has been the fastest growing podcast that we've done, and in, in typical fashion, I look at things, we evaluate, we assess, and then we you know make adjustments. Yeah. I think that opened up an opportunity. I, I could easily see myself going all over the country and doing those little kinds of focus groups and turning them into podcasts. So if you're out there and you would like us to come to your community and do a podcast, if you'd like to help us put together a group of, uh, of consumers, I think that would be great. Now, I would have a question for you. Who is the prime consumer? Do we consider it Gen X? Is it up to 45? Is it 54 to 65? That's funny. I, I just was talking with Jerry Epperson about this, and I, and I don't have it in front of me, but the, the millennials have become the prime, the prime furniture consumer. I think it's age, it's age 34 through 50 or 54. And so, it's the, so they're the prime consumer, but they haven't hit their prime yet. It's like they're, 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 in, that, they're, they're in that window, but the, the bread and butter of it isn't there yet. So. Well, interestingly enough, right, we talk about generation. You're saying the prime consumer is 35 to 54. That was probably true 20 years ago, probably true mm -hmm. 40 years ago. So again, but, that goes but, back to life stage, yeah. right? It's not, when you, it's not your generation, it's where you are in your family cycle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think it would be great to sit down with some Gen Xers. I think it would be great to sit down with some baby boomers. And then the question is, what are you shopping for? I know as a baby boomer, um, my generation is starting to get into their 60s and 70s. So it's one of the reasons I think that we've seen an increase or a boost in the lift chair business. We've mm -hmm. seen a lot more companies in the last, since I've been in the business. My, my mom has bought two in the, in the past few months. All right, so there you go. How about you? What was your last furniture purchase? Um, my last furniture purchase was uh, a bed. My, my Be wife and bed I mattress or bed bed? Both. So we, um, we decided to go to a king size. So we um, took our queen size and uh, we upgraded to a king size. And of course that necessitated uh, a new mattress purchase. The mattress purchase actually was the subject of a column. So people who may remember a year or so ago. Remind me, it um, was a bad experience. <laughs> it, it was not a great experience. 
Um, what what happened was, uh, and, and it's a funny thing, it was a really good experience and not such a great. So the bed was supposed to take a certain number of weeks and the retailer was able to deliver it several weeks early. And so we uh, thought we had more time to shop for a mattress and we found out on Tuesday that our bed was coming on Friday and so we wanted a very quick turnaround on a mattress. Um, so we went into a specialty mattress store that we expected would have on, you know, availability. We were told they would. Um, when the day came, they didn't. Hmm. So we, we waited, uh, you know, an extra week. Um, an extra week yeah, for a mattress. For a mattress. Did you buy from the bed from a store? Yes. Did you look online first? No. Did you look online as far as like study first? Uh, actually, you know what? I shouldn't say that. Yes, we did look at styles. Um, we did look online, but um, I like to see things. I guess, and maybe this is a generational thing. I do like to see th see things up close. I would never purchase a mattress or a sofa without sitting on them or laying on them. Even if you could return it in 90 days? <laughs> Even if I could return it. I'm, and, then, and again, that's a personal thing, right? I'm not great at returning things. So I would probably end up paying for the mattress, throwing it in the garage, and having to go buy another mattress. Okay. It's just a quirky personal thing. You can't draw any demographic conclusion from that. Um, all right. Jumping to something different. I, it's fair to say I'm probably closer to the top 100 than other distribution channels. And I've been kicking around a few related thoughts since we published the last Top 100. I wanted to bounce a couple of them off of you, get your take. But j just let me just run down some statistics here. I'm sorry if this is boring, but 3.3% of sales, 3.3% uh, sales gain for the combined Top 100. It was the ninth gain in a row, but it was the third year that that percentage shrunk. Um, from the previous year, it was the first time in 10 years that the increase for the top 100 was less than the increase for all furniture stores. So like this, the next group of furniture stores, that all furniture stores did 6.8% last year. Um, and that, that, meant, um, that meant that there was a slight decrease in top 100's market share for all furniture stores. But at the same time, uh, their share against all distribution channels like e-commerce, pure play e-commerce, and department stores, and uh, home super office super stores, it, it held steady at 40%, so they didn't lose any ground there. Uh, so, I, I just wanted, so I just wanted to see what you make of that. I, I, I have some thoughts, but I just wanted to see what you make of that. That they held their ground, that actually small furniture stores seemed to do better than the top 100 stores as far as sales growth but furniture stores held their own in the vast distribution channel of furniture sales. I don't have what I would consider a definitive answer that I think, yeah, this is it and I know the answer. I have a theory and you can That's, that's what, I, that's what I want to hear. Yeah, so people can disagree. Um, I think when you look at top 100s, those are people who sell at scale and at volume. So they need to represent a broad swath of the consumer base, which means that they are in, in some cases, I think, in places that are the most challenged by e-commerce. So that means that you're in broadly popular styles. It means you're in broadly popular and highly competitive price points. 
Um, and you're also probably very reliant on the traditional, what we would call middle class, right? The middle market consumer. Mm -hmm. And I think if you were to look at the economics of the U.S., and we've been seeing, we've been writing about this, there's a polarization taking place. There's a certain segment of the population that's being pushed up, and so there's more money at the top of the market, and there's a certain portion of the population that's being pushed down. I mean, I've said this before, I think for some people nowadays, Walmart is an aspirational purchase. I think that's why you see um, dollar stores doing particularly well, and they have been growing over the last several years because there are consumers who are economically challenged. So when you think about smaller stores, smaller stores tend to be those that address more specific niches. They have to have a more individualized identity. And again, all of this retail is like the English language. For every rule, there's an exception. And I, I mm -hmm. know right, that. Right. So I, I'm not saying this is the case. In no, what I like that theory is playing into the reason why we might be saying it. And Derry Epperson said something similar in that it was... That it it was, must be true. <laughs> it was like, it's... Uh, it was almost time. You know, it was 10 years, you, you know, you, eventually you have a dip, but I don't know if he said that, but he also talked about the designer, the designer business. A lot of them, a lot of designers have boutiques, and if they have a boutique, it counts as a store, and that's a growing, you, could, you know it's a growing part of the furniture business because you see more and more um, suppliers at High Point Market focusing on that uh, sector. 40, according to High Point Market Authority, 47% of the attendees to the high point market are now designers. Yeah. So that's a that's a very big number. Yeah. Uh, it also your theory. Well, I think I, I like that theory. I think that I think it's a lot of different things. Um, when you get to like the share holding steady against e-commerce, that doesn't seem to make sense. You know, it's like e-commerce is has been coming on strong for years. It seems like e-commerce players should be gaining ground on furniture stores. Um, but that's we don't study furniture e-commerce like there's not a furniture e-commerce category um, but and also we so in the vast distribution channel where we held our own you also have department stores which aren't doing very well right now and some of them are dropping furniture or scaling back on their furniture embedding um, you also have office superstores there's a lot of other channels that aren't e-commerce, that aren't doing well, so we may be gaining ground on them, therefore holding steady against the e-commerce uh, channel. So. Well, I, I think you raised a good point there. We don't track, I think one thing that top 100 furniture stores are getting much better at is their own e-commerce operations. But when we track their numbers, we don't track their e-commerce numbers separate, we track their right. overall business. Right. So if their e-commerce business is better, mm -hmm. they're, they might be kind of holding off the pure play. Because when we talk about e-commerce in terms of our statistics, we're talking about pure play e-commerce, yeah, yeah. right? So it's Amazon, Wayfair, Overstock, and those kind of right. folks. So as top 100s get better in e-commerce, um, I think that might be reflected in them holding off the e-commerce growth a little bit more effectively. And it might, over time, um, encourage us to start to try to break out and I'm sure they'll all be very willing to share exactly mm -hmm. what their e-commerce numbers are, don't you think? I do. I don't. And my other, my, which is really my next thing that I wanted to ask you about, was the betting stores. Um, betting stores had a terrible year. Uh, they're probably going to have another terrible year. If you combine them all together, partly on Mattress Firm, because their store closings came at the end of their fiscal year or at, the, or at the beginning of their fiscal of their new fiscal year so there I think there's some 
uh, hundreds of stores that aren't even included in the top 100 that are no longer, that they've been closed. So it was a bad year for betting, uh, and that hurt the top 100 overall, their overall sales figures. Interestingly, I don't know if I would agree that it was a bad year for betting. I think it was a bad year yeah. for specialty betting stores. That's true. And I think I meant betting in the top 100, which in betting stores, there's like, I think there's 10 of them, and three of them filed for bankruptcy in the past few months. Well, I think this goes back to where we started the podcast, and we talked about why furniture stores continue to be very fragmented or diffuse, and it goes back to the delivery question. If you are delivering something large, there are certain requirements necessary for that. There's a certain infrastructure that is required to do that. The biggest change in the mattress business in the last three years has been boxed beds. At boxed beds negates one of a furniture specialties, either a furniture bedding department or a bedding specialty store's biggest advantages, mm -hmm. um, which is the ability to deliver and deliver quickly, um, the ability to get it quickly. Now, I can order online and I can have it delivered. I never have to leave my house. I have a 100-night guarantee in a lot of cases. Um, and so I think, at least in the near term, that's going to continue. But already, you're starting to see uh, furniture stores in particular start to respond. Uh, I did a column last week, depending on when you're listening to this, it's two weeks ago, about weaponizing your store, mm -hmm. right? which is taking advantage of the fact that your store, there's nothing more immediate than shopping in a store. Mm -hmm. If I order on Amazon, it's gonna take me 24 to 48 hours. If I walk into a store and I can carry it right out, there's nothing faster than that. So if I play that advantage, if I play that to my advantage as a furniture store, if I say, you need a bed tonight, we'll get you one tonight. You know, you have unexpected company, we can get you that bed. Come on in right now, we have a whole selection of box beds available for you. You can walk out with your favorite bed throw it right in your car. And so I think as furniture stores and bedding specialty stores get better at utilizing the store, the inherent advantages of a store, I think you may start to see that number reverse itself. The other thing about bedding is there have been a huge number of direct consumer players flooding that business. Um, at our betting conference, Mike Magnuson from Goodbed, who tracks that business really, really closely, mm -hmm. talked about the number of new players in the direct-to-consumer business has shrunk and is starting to decline. So I think you're, you're going to start to see a little bit, bit of fallout. So you're already seeing, I think we've already seen the crest of that wave to some extent, and now we're going to start to enter what's the next stage, is even direct-to-consumer players opening stores, getting into stores, right. making arrangements with stores. Yeah. So I think we're now into stage two. You know, another, another thing about weaponizing your stores, uh, and maybe related, that and also playing up social media, is I just did something, coming from the furniture first um, betting conference, they have this best ideas contest where all the, it was just really one of the best things about the conference is hearing the best ideas from retailers. And the, it wasn't the, and it wasn't the winner. I think it was number two, but uh, Furniture Mall of Kansas, they, they did a, a, a comfort test, a blind comfort test between like a ceiling mattress that they sell in store and Casper. And they invited people via social media to come check it out. You know, we're going to record what you have to say, which one's more comfortable. And um, I think more than 80% or roughly 80% chose the in-store mattress. They did the same thing with purple. They followed the same thing with purple and more than 80% chose that too. So uh, that was a clever way of sort of weaponizing your stores. You could try them out right here. You can, and also they figured out a way to do it on social media. So. 
Well, I think that works on two levels, right? You encourage people into your store, so you've pumped up your traffic, mm -hmm. and you've also kind of flipped the tables on your competitor, and there's no way to test the bet online. So you see, for example, Purple, their commercials are very, very clever. If you've seen the yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. eggs attached to a guy and they <laughs> drop them on the mattress and the eggs don't break, um, you think, must be a great mattress. Right. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that it sleeps as well. So I think that that's a smart, yeah. smart yeah. idea on two levels. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're probably running out of time. Uh, I guess I wanted to ask you about, if we have time, to ask you about trade wars. Uh, if you had a crystal ball, how is this all going to play out? I have no idea. I honestly don't. Um, I think there's, I think there's more at play than simply tariffs. I, I think if you look at the current uh, situation with China and Mexico in a bigger context, and you look at it. Uh, in the context of global competition and geopolitical competition. I think there are some factors that we who are looking just at the, the tariffs and what those tariffs mean um, may not be considering as much as we perhaps could. I, I think also if you think about the evolution of economics and you study the long arc of economic history, it's not uncommon for countries early in their economic history and when they were at the height of uh, economic power to be free trade advocates. There was a time when the United States was the low-cost producer and we were able to use that, coupled with our population, um, coupled with natural resources, mm -hmm. to build a dominant position in the world. Well, obviously the United States is no longer the low-cost producer and so the, the dynamics of that competition change. There was a point at which there were very few tariffs for European countries and then as their economies matured and they uh, again had to deal with the rise of labor unions and increasing costs and all of these other things, they needed to protect the domestic industries through tariffs. I think you simply might be seeing the United States enter a stage, a maturation stage um, where, and I could be wrong and if you disagree with me, write a letter to the editor. I happily and willingly run conflicting opinions. I love it when people uh, want to debate. Um, but I think we could be entering uh, a phase of our economic life where tariffs become more of an everyday reality. Interesting. And so um, if I were to you know, be thinking long term, uh, I, I would think about what if these tariffs don't go away for long term, what does that mean? And there are companies in this industry uh, who have started to adapt to that reality. Uh, I think you're going to see uh, an ad in an upcoming issue of Furniture Today. Mm -hmm. Ashley is saying, we have no price increases on 98.5% of our merchandise. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they're able to do that is that they have invested billions of dollars in domestic factories. Uh, and they also offshore to, from to China. Vietnam. Yeah. They, they got to Vietnam well ahead of... I hear Cambodia, else. too. Uh, Jake Jabs was saying they've moved... Because uh, Vietnam's so full now, they've pushed some stuff to come... Cambodia. Well, I think you're going to see a lot of people have to look elsewhere from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. we've, we've written about this extensively. I've, I've written about it in a number of columns. Um, Vietnam simply doesn't have the same population as China. Uh, it doesn't have the same infrastructure yet. So um, I think there are a lot of people who are going to be looking to Vietnam who, who are not going to be able to get capacity. So there are going to be new countries emerging. And it's not just in furniture. I think it's going to be in, in all products. It's going to be Uh, I'm Bill McLaughlin with Furniture Today, and I have been in the hot seat.
Have a great week.